This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. This is David Lang speaking. I'm the Melvin Shem Professor of Law at the Duke University School of Law. I want to spend a few minutes today talking about a perennial question in the law of the First Amendment. You will likely recall that the amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. It's common in our time to say the First Amendment ensures freedom of expression, but the framers did refer to both speech and press, and the question is, are they different? That is, does freedom of speech mean something different from freedom of the press? And if so, is it then possible to imagine that freedom of the press means a particular sort of freedom for the institutional press, newspapers, for example, or network news divisions or news magazines, and possibly journalists themselves in addition to their employers? And if there is a particular sort of freedom for the institutional press, then does that mean that we as individuals are not included in that freedom? And so on. I expect you'll see the underlying question readily enough, even if you haven't had reason to think about it before. And I imagine you can think of many additional ways to elaborate on that initial question. Now, I imagine you will also see at once that if there really is such a thing as a separate freedom of the institutional press, then we will need to answer an additional question among a number of others. Who or what exactly is the press? Established news gathering and reporting enterprises, presumably, but is the Huffington Press included? Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, MSNBC, Sean Hannity, Chris Matthews, Rachel Maddow, Keith Olbermann? How do we define the press or its players? These are not new questions, though they are not as old as you might imagine either. I first encountered them some 35 years ago or a little more when Justice Potter Stewart suggested in a speech delivered at the Yale Law School and later published that the institutional press did enjoy prerogatives not necessarily available to individuals. The press clause was different from the speech clause he suggested, both as a textual matter, that is, otherwise taken together, the two clauses would amount to a kind of collective redundancy, and also because it made sense to recognize the press as engaged in the performance of public functions of consequence to the national interest in ways that individuals were unlikely to be. Writing separately, but at almost exactly the same time, Melville Nimmer, then a professor of law at UCLA, came to much the same conclusion as Justice Stewart had done, though with some misgivings and with a more extended effort at explaining and justifying the conclusion. Why do we value freedom of expression, Nimmer asked. Because, he answered, that freedom allows us to express ourselves, and in that largesse also affords society a safety valve against pent-up grievances and the like. But those functions belong naturally to individual speech, Nimmer argued, more so than to the organs of the institutional press. The great value of the press, he thought, lies in its singular contributions to the democratic dialogue, 
contributions of such importance that it makes sense to recognize them as the subject of a particular freedom of expression that need not be recognized coextensively in individuals. When these essays appeared circa 1975, I was drawn to the subject matter by a number of years of experience in practicing, litigating, and teaching in the First Amendment arena. And I was convinced that Justice Stewart and Professor Nimmer were on the wrong side of the matter. In my view, the speech and press clauses were best read as if they were each part of the other, a kind of twinship, as it were, a yin and yang. And this was particularly so, in my opinion, at the time, if the alternative was really to extend to the institutional press some sort of jumped-up expressive status not to be enjoyed by individuals. That seemed plainly wrong when measured against the likelihood that the framers had intended no such thing, and wrong as well in terms of contemporary policy. To enhance the First Amendment status of the press was almost certain to diminish the status of individual speech, while threatening to expose the press itself to attacks driven by its now greater prominence as a target of opportunity. Besides which, I asked, anticipating the question I posed a moment ago, how in the end are we to decide what the press really is? I published an essay of my own that same year expressing these reservations. A few years later, I had the admitted satisfaction of seeing my arguments embraced by Chief Justice Berger's concurring opinion in a case in which the question of a separate status for the press was actually in the nature of a collateral issue. Still, so far, so good, I thought, and I continued on with other things. That was in 1978. But, of course, questions of this sort have a habit of never really being settled, a lesson driven home in several dimensions in the year just ended. Item, the issues in Obsidian Finance Group versus Cox, a case arising in a Portland, Oregon federal district court and making its way forward during the entirety of the year 2011, eventually raised the question I had anticipated long ago, although now in a context I could not possibly have anticipated. Is a blogger to be considered part of the press for the purpose of claiming the limited protection afforded to journalists by an Oregon statute? The federal judge presiding over the litigation ruled against that claim at the end of the year, a ruling which in turn excited some comments here and there, including one at some removed by my own colleague Stuart Benjamin, who expressed uncertainty as to whether the First Amendment ought ever to protect against liability for defamation when, and I'm quoting Stuart now, everyone and his brother can publish false information to the world at the push of a button, end quote. Meanwhile, a member of the Georgia law faculty, Professor Sanja West, published an essay entitled Awakening the Press Clause inspired, albeit somewhat indirectly, by the Supreme Court's decision in the Citizens United case in 2010. Her essay appeared in the UCLA Law Review in 2011. In her work, she argues that the institutional press should be defined narrowly in order to give the press clause a more prominent role. A blogger would not qualify as a member of the press. The press is not everyone, she concludes, 
everyone is not the press. I give her full credit for making her argument in a straightforward fashion, but it directly proposes the very sort of straightened reading of the First Amendment that I invade against in 1975, and I confess that I remain unsusceptible to it on the merits. And finally, among those items which have lately led me once again to the well-trodden paths of yesteryear is an essay by Eugene Volokh, yet another member of the UCLA law faculty, who published an essay in the Pennsylvania Law Review last year that ranks among the finest works of scholarship I have read in a professional lifetime that is now in its 51st year. His work is entitled Freedom for the Press as an Industry or for the Press as a Technology, from the Framing to Today. That work appears in Volume 160 of the review at page 459. Essentially indifferent to theory, it is a tour de force of patient and thorough examination of precedents, the likes of which we rarely see in contemporary work at any hand. Bullock doesn't really address the speech clause as Justice Stewart, Professor Nimmer, and I did years ago. And his approach to the press clause asks essentially whether it should be read as applicable to the press as a technology, in other words, as a means of disseminating expression, or whether it should be read as somehow sanctifying the press as an industry. This also poses a modest change in approach and taxonomy. But ultimately, Volokh's question is the perennial one. Is the institutional or industrial press a privileged entity under the First Amendment? His response is clear and direct. The historical evidence, he writes, points powerfully in one direction. Throughout American history, the dominant understanding of the freedom of the press has followed the press as technology model. This was likely the original meaning of the First Amendment. It was almost certainly the understanding when the 14th Amendment was ratified. It remained the largely unchallenged orthodoxy until about 1970. Since 1970, a few lower court decisions have adopted the press as industry model, but this has been a distinctly minority view. The Supreme Court continues to provide equal treatment to speakers without regard to whether they are members of the press as industry. And though several Supreme Court opinions have noted that the question remains open, the bulk of the precedent points toward equal treatment for all speakers, or at least to equal treatment for all who use mass communications technologies, whether or not they are members of the press as industry. Of course, the Supreme Court has never limited itself to analyzing constitutional provisions based solely on historical sources. Justices remain free to decide for themselves what they think best serves the values that they deem protected by constitutional provisions. The point of this article, Volokh concludes, is simply to say that an argument for a press-as-industry interpretation of the free press clause must rely on something other than original meaning, text, purpose, tradition, or precedent. To all of this, I might reply myself that theory has its uses, but on this occasion I am reminded of what I learned as a student half a century ago. 
arrayed against meaning, text, purpose, tradition, or precedent, theory in law must work hard to justify itself. I think this is implicit in Bullock's essay. I might wish I had done 35 years ago what he has done today in examining the precedents such as they were then. I am grateful for his effort now. But then, of course, I am pleased with the outcome it suggests. For, at least in theory, this outcome is what I have judged best all along. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.